Well, as Andrew said, this is our our last visit to Ephesians for the moment. And last week, if you were here, uh, you remember we we thought about what real Christian living looks like. I I put a little uh, recap on the top of the the little sheet uh, in front of you. In chapter 4, Paul told us that there are are essentially two ways to live. Uh, The way people who are not Christians live, and that way, as the Bible describes it, is they ignore God. Uh, they push him out. And as they do that, if you do that, you eventually become desensitized to God. So we said, didn't we, it shouldn't surprise us if we hear people who are not Christians saying things like, and if you're not a Christian, you may have said something like this, uh, well, if there is a God, he won't mind that I don't believe in him. I don't feel that it's that important. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians, that's, effectively, that's the kind of thing you should expect people to say. As you reject God, you, you stop caring. That's not a good thing. Uh, Because to be desensitized to to God, to be cut off from him, to be cut off from the one who gives us life, is not good at all. But Paul says if you and I are Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, we should be living uh, differently. And that's what that little diagram on the handout was about, if you remember it from last week, the circle representing our lives. And there's you and I, if we're Christians, uh, living under uh, the good rule of the Lord Jesus. And it works a little bit like this, Paul says, as we're taught about Jesus, as we're taught the truth about this uh, historical Jesus who lived and worked uh, in Nazareth and travelled around, we come to know he's not just a man from history. He is, in fact, the Christ, God's King, uh, the one in charge of everything. And as we come to know that's true, as we're convinced of that, if we know he is the Christ, that means it must result in change in our lives, a change of repentance, turning from ignoring God, a new life. And so we said last week, didn't we, real Christian living looks like repentance and new life. And Christians must be committed to change because Jesus should be in charge of our lives. That's what should be happening. Well, I've been uh, reminded this weekend there are some things that people uh, just don't want to miss. J.K. Rowling published her seventh and final Harry Potter book uh, this weekend. Uh, I imagine most of us have at least heard of Harry Potter. Uh, Thousands queued until midnight on Friday to make sure that at one minute past uh, they got the book. I received a text message, can you believe it, at 11 minutes past midnight from a friend who will remain nameless saying, we've got the book. I was in bed asleep at the time. Thank you very much for that text message. But I I do love the attitude of the dedicated fan, don't you? Wanting to lay their hands on the prize the very first moment they can. They don't want to waste one minute uh, that could be employed finding out whether Harry defeats Lord Voldemort, whether Ron and Hermione get married, or whether Snape is really evil or just following Dumbledore's plans. If you've never read Harry Potter, don't worry, but there are some of the things that happen. And if you want to read it, I've not spoiled anything to you. Somebody, I was running at somebody's house yesterday and they picked up the book and read something from the last page. you believe that? That's an outrageous thing to do. Spoil the ending. I'll not do that for you if you want to read it. But there is something commendable about the dedicated fan, isn't there? There's more, something more commendable about them, them than the people who say, well, I'll just wait a couple of days and get it at Tesco for half price. Um, You can tell, obviously, some of you are doing that uh, this week. (laughs) Nothing wrong with it, just not as commendable. Uh, You can tell the true Harry Potter fan when you see them, can't you? They put the effort in. They take it seriously, one minute past midnight, and 
it's only for a book. It's just a book. And we've been thinking about real Christian living, the, the kind of Christian living that when God looks at it, he said, yes, that's the church, as I want to see it. Well, can I ask you, if you're a Christian, how's it been this past week for you? Or this past month, this past year? Productive for you as a Christian? Have you felt like the Christian equivalent of the Harry Potter fan, not wanting to waste one minute in growing and changing as a Christian, in responding to grace? I think that often uh, we just never get round to it, do we? I include myself as a Christian when I, when I say we can be half-hearted. Uh, Paul has said change must take, be taking place in, in Christians. Remember last week, he gives examples of areas in life where change should be happening. Now look at the last one he mentioned. In chapter 5, verse 3, if you've got it open in front of you, uh, let's just look at it together. He, he says this, uh, But among you uh, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Change should have taken place. And now that he's spelled out uh, the necessity for change, he gives a word uh, that those of us who too easily become half-hearted need to hear. He, He speaks, I guess, directly to Christians. It's something that we need to hear. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're, you're considering it. Maybe there's something to listen into. And what the Bible says about Christian living. But Paul gives a word that those of us who, who too easily become half-hearted as Christians need to hear. And it's the first main heading in your, your handout. And it's this. If you are a Christian, you must live a distinctive life. And verses 5 to 14. If you are a Christian, you must live a distinctive life. We're told in this country, uh, politics has moved from political extremes to vying for the centre ground. Uh, The trouble for the main parties is is coming up with policies that stand out from each other. Uh, Labour moves towards the centre, the Conservatives towards the same point, uh, and some feel there's nothing really distinctive. And you might feel that it's a good thing in politics, but when it comes to Christians living in the world, Paul will not have us think that way. No, he wants us to think in extremes, to be distinctive. You see chapter 5, verse 8? You were once darkness, but now you are light. What could be more distinct than light and darkness? Chapter 5 and verse 11 have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. I stay away from them completely. If you're a Christian... Paul says, you must live a distinctive life. And here's two reasons uh, why it is a must. Godliness matters. And by godliness, uh, we mean living the way God wants us to. Uh, Godliness matters to God, and godliness matters in our world. Uh, Godliness matters to God, verses uh, 5 to 7. It's easy to believe uh, we live independent lives, especially if we're, if we're uh, financially stable, we can do more or less what we want. And, and I guess, especially in the area of morality, yeah, what we do in private with a few limitations uh, is between ourselves and our consciences, isn't it? Well, Paul says, 
No. And he picks up on his previous example, uh, the immoral, impure, or greedy person. He, he's talking about sexual morality specifically. And by greedy person, uh, the sense is sexually greedy. It's lust with very little restraint. Uh, but notice, Paul says, uh, morality, sexual or otherwise, uh, whether we like it or not, has a fixed reference point outside of my conscience. You see verse 5? No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. God views immorality as idolatry. That's a rejection of himself. See, how we live can never be private or independent because God always views it personally. He always takes how we live Personally, how we live says something about how we view God. See, Paul's blunt about the consequences, isn't he? People who live rejecting God will find themselves rejected. In the future, they'll find they'll get nothing but God's anger. As such people, he says in verse 5, will not have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Well, that's the future that's in store. You can read that and you start to feel Paul's words are a little sharp. They're a bit extreme. All this talk about God's wrath. But you understand his concern. You see why he's saying this. He's not saying it to be mean. He's not saying it to be hard on you or down on you. It's there in verse 6, isn't it? Let no one deceive you. It's there in verse 7, isn't it? Therefore, do not be partners with them. He's warning us. Knowing that we are easily taken in, because we live in a society that cares very little for God and his word, that that thinks ignoring God doesn't really have consequences. And we start to believe sin doesn't really matter. That in this part of my life, it's okay to be independent of God. So Paul says sharply, do you want to find yourself facing nothing but God's anger? Don't be stupid. Godliness matters to God. Sexual morality is a stumbling block for many of us. We're naive if we're not careful here. Our society adopts all sorts of values about sex before marriage, pornography, how you handle lustful thoughts, how you treat members of the opposite sex. I don't think it doesn't matter. Don't partner the world in its lifestyle choices. Don't join in those kind of conversations in the staff canteen. God has shown you great love through Jesus. Now why would you want to live in a way that makes him angry? Oh, here's the other reason for being distinctive. And it's in verses 8 to 14. Godliness matters in our world. I don't know if you remember Ready Breck cereal. Do you remember Ready Breck breakfast cereal? When I was younger, I used to love the adverts. They used to have this advert on TV. Uh, children would eat a bowl full of the stuff, and then they'd have a kind of light around them. Do you remember that advert? A kind of orange glow. Uh, Ready Breck, the advertisers led me to believe, made you warm, and you'd give off a light. I liked the idea of that. Uh, I asked my mum to buy me some, and I have to say, I was disappointed. Um, <laughs> 
Not only for me, you may like it, but for me, I thought it tasted like cardboard with hot milk. But I didn't give off a light. Um, I was very disappointed with that. So, so verse 8 catches my eye when I read it. It's a little bit like the Ready Break advert. It's one of those bits in the Bible where you think you know what it says, but then you realize it's a little different. I'd expect Paul to say, talking about Christians, to say something like this. For you were once in darkness, but now you're in the light. Isn't that what you'd expect? But that's not what he says. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul says Christians, because they're in a relationship with Jesus, they are light. What does he mean? Well, he mixes his metaphors a little bit and he tells us about the fruit of the light in verse 9. I'm not quite sure how light has fruit exactly, but he mixes his metaphors to explain it to us. And in verse 9 he says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Oh, he's talking about godly living. If you're a Christian, when, when you become a Christian, part of being a Christian is that you're meant to give off light. And the thing that should shine out from you is a life that pleases the Lord. A godliness. So, if you are light, we'll live like it. That's the second half of verse 8, isn't it? Uh, live as children of the light. Find out what pleases the Lord. Let those things uh, shine out from you. Uh, light is, is still an odd way to describe Christians though, isn't it? I wonder why Paul picks on that. And I, I think part of the answer comes in verse 11. Where Paul says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but, but everything exposed by light becomes visible. And when you switch the light on, you get to see things as they really are. So you, you might know how it is after the party at your house. It was too late to tidy up, so uh, you just went to bed. You know, you know what happens when you come down in the morning, the curtains are closed, the room's in darkness, it seems okay. And then you, you flick the light switch, the light comes on and you see the mess for what it is. And you think, I'll just get my wife, she'll clean it up in a minute. <laughs> uh, Paul's saying that in this world that rejects God... And because everyone is more or less the same, it's like we're in darkness. Now, we can't really see what it's like, but, but God who loves us, a God who always wants to tell us the truth, God who always wants to show us reality, well, he's done something wonderful in the world. He's decided to gather for himself a people who are his own, that he's saved and forgiven. And then he started changing them into what people should be. He, he changes them so they start to become little by little like Jesus. If you're a Christian, that's what should be happening to you. And then God leaves them in the world a bit like a light switched on. Uh, this is what life is, is meant to be like. Lives that are a little bit like lights. I think we know how, how lives can, can work like lights. You know, a couple uh, that have a baby. A family uh, of mine have just had a, a baby this morning. Oh, as that new life enters your life, uh, you start to see things in each other. 
You've probably had that experience, those of you who have had families. It exposes emotions you'd hardly noticed before. A depth of love that you hadn't realised. A a, a nurturing part of you. Uh, Parts of your character that you hadn't spotted suddenly become visible. It's like a light has been switched on as this life comes into yours. Or or for those men who are married, you remember when your your wife moved in with you. uh, The way she lived showed up certain things about you. Strange and colourful shapes appeared in your house. You asked her what they were and she said, that's fruit and veg. (laughs) The light switched on. You knew you'd been eating rubbish up until that point. You saw it clearly. Her life exposed things in yours. You started to see all sorts of things more clearly. Do you begin to see why Christians must live distinctive lives? Do you begin to see why it's a must? Do you see why godliness matters in our world? It's part of God's plan to graciously show the world the state it's really in. To expose the ugliness of sin. People are meant to come and meet with the the church family and, and see something about the life God calls us to. Oh, stick with Paul's example of, of sexual morality just for a moment because if current statistics are to be believed, in, in the past decade, gonorrhea and HIV have more than doubled. Our cases of syphilis up by 1,500%. And the number of sexually active people under 25 with chlamydia is thought to be around half a million I came across this article in the Daily Telegraph a while back. Scarlett Johansson, who is undoubtedly a very beautiful woman and a good actress, who says this, I do think at some basic level we are animals and by instinct we breed accordingly. I get tested for HIV twice a year. One has to be socially aware. It's part of being a decent human to be tested for STDs. It's just disgusting behaviour when people don't. It's so irresponsible. That's Scarlett Johansson at 21. A life that needs to be tested like that twice a year. The Metro newspaper reported earlier this year that Mary Stokes Clinics performed 5,992 abortions last January. Uh, The biggest number for a single month in its 32-year history. And the reason they gave... Well, Liz Davies, the UK director, said, we may be seeing the consequences of the festive season when partying to excess and alcohol consumption combine to increase libido and lower inhibitions with the inevitable consequences resulting in unplanned pregnancies. Inevitable consequences? So how do you shine a light into this? How do you shine a light that helps clear up thinking? that eases and comforts troubled consciences from all the mess of relationships and by speaking of Christ's forgiveness. So Paul says, be concerned about godliness. See, if we're, we're Christians and married, be godly. Live distinctive lives. Live a life that says relationships should be different. If you're Christian and single, be godly. It can be tough being single for all sorts of reasons. If you stick to what the Bible says about relationships, you can be made to feel naive, inexperienced, stupid. Do you listen to me? Your godliness is good for the world. Now, the NIV, which is the translation of the Bible we have in front of us, is a little unclear in verse 14. It says something like this. 
For it is the light that makes everything visible. It's not the best translation. I think the ESV is reading. Uh, the ESV's reading is probably better. I've put it on your handout. It's just, it's just on your handout there. Let, let me read it to you. This, this is what the ESV says. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Then it says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Anything that becomes visible is light. Paul's saying that as darkness is exposed by light, something can happen that's more than just reality being seen. So darkness itself is potentially changed into light. I think he's talking about people becoming Christians. As Christians live distinctive lives, others get to see what life is meant to be about. Now begin to understand why sin is serious and they'll possibly turn to Jesus. I think that's why Paul quotes what some think is an early hymn, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Our lives are meant to shine a light in people's lives that says, Wake up. Our lives as Christians here at Fullwood are part of the means God uses to try and wake our community up to their need to know Jesus' forgiveness. Our people are meant to say things like, well, you're really involved with that church up the road, aren't you? You seem to have lots of different friends who really love you. I'd like to have friendships like that. How do you do it? Uh, the Christians at Mums and Toddlers, people are meant to say, or, or at Friday Club, they've been really kind to me. Uh, why are they like that? They hardly even know me. Uh, friends at work uh, should say things like, well, you wouldn't sleep with someone before you marry them. Part of me thinks you're just an idiot, but... But part of me thinks you're probably wise because I always end up just feeling used in relationships. And neighbours should say things like, well, I've seen the way you and your husband work at your marriage and it makes me wish I'd not given up on mine. How do you do it? See, our lives are meant to give a wake-up call. And not arrogantly, not making out that we're somehow better than other people, but graciously and lovingly speaking of the one who's rescued us. That's the question to ask, isn't it? Are we doing that here in Fullwood? If you're a Christian, you must live a distinctive life. A godliness matters to God, and it matters in our world. As I read this letter, I can almost feel Paul saying, do you understand how important this is? Have I convinced you yet? And if you feel yourself beginning to say, yeah, Paul, I think I just about get it, well then his second big thing is, so start taking real care how you live. If you understand it's important to live a distinctive life, well then start taking real care with how you live your life. Verses 15 to 21. And many of you know I got married uh, four weeks ago. Uh, we had a lovely day here. And Julie and I just got a wedding presents uh, this week. Uh, they arrived. It's brilliant getting married. You get lots of free stuff. Really, really good. Um, we got a little digital radio it's brilliant, I love stuff like that and a kettle that whistles when it boils isn't that good, and no electric kettle you just shove it on the hob and it whistles away I don't know, what it's, you, you know what it's like when you open presents like that there's always little bits of paper that come with it and they say something like how to look after your digital radio uh, how to care for your whistling kettle I always get bored with bits of paper like that I don't want to read them I want to just get on with playing with the stuff I've got I find them boring to read but it's worth it, isn't it? It's worth looking after things that are important. So Paul's saying our lives are important in God's plans. If you're a Christian, you're not just 
and nobody sitting on a pew. Your life is important. It's important to take care with it. So verse 15, be very careful then how you live. Take real care with your life. It counts for something. It's important. And we're given a checklist for careful living in these next few verses. Check your living is wise. And check your living is spirit-filled. Check your living is wise, verse 15. Wisdom in the Bible seems to be living life practically in light of God's word. We heard about wisdom in our first reading. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. And Paul gives us something similar in verse 16. Live wisely. And making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Make the most of every opportunity is kind of, you've got a limited amount of time to make the most of it. You can't do everything, so make sure you're doing the important things. See, wise living starts to think, what are God's priorities with the time I've got? Do you ever sit down and think about that? See, that's what wise living starts to do. With the time I've got, what are the important things? For example, those of you with young children, what are God's priorities with them with the time you've got? You may be busy, you may have lots of work on, or if you're a grandparent with your grandchildren, is there half an hour in the morning when you see them that I could read them a Bible story and talk to them about trusting Jesus at school? Are you making the most of your opportunities? That's a good thing to check, isn't it? And if we're meant to shine God's life to others, uh, what are God's priorities with the time I've got in building friendships with neighbours? Uh, what days of the week could I keep free to invite people round or, or visit someone? As I check my own life in this regard, I think I've not been very careful or wise at all. That's something we could check this week. And as we check we're living wisely, we'll check your living is spirit-filled. And verse 18 onwards... I wonder what ideas uh, come to mind when you hear spirit-filled living. Uh, Paul gives another contrast. Uh, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. I'm not sure alcohol was a a particular problem for his readers. I think it's just another example of the kind of life, uh, of a kind of life and its outcome. Getting drunk, it stops you thinking clearly, doesn't it? It muddles all your thinking. and it, It leads to living the wrong way, saying stupid things and acting in stupid ways. Uh, Being filled with the Spirit... That means living a life that trusts Jesus. And the outcome in life is very different. I see, far from muddled thinking, you become clear-headed. Filled with the Spirit, your thinking is clear enough to, or how does Paul put it? Speak to one another clearly with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Being filled with the Spirit is not being taken over in some sort of weird ways. It's being put in your right mind. It's becoming clear-headed, articulate, a concern for others. Our Bibles break up that sentence, but it's all one sentence. All this is what Spirit-filled living looks like. These are the characteristics of Spirit-filled people. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's, That's encouraging one another, isn't it? 
It's saying things to each other that build each other up. It's singing and making music in your heart to God. That's, that's a personal thing. It's, it's rejoicing, isn't it? Now, whatever the circumstances, always giving thanks to God, that's being grateful. That's submitting to one another, willing to serve. That's, that's real humility. That's a checklist on characteristics for us. How are you getting on with those kind of things at home? Are you encouraging your, your wife or your husband? And do you rejoice when things are hard? Do your family members hear you thanking God for things? Are you willing to serve? Uh, last week we went away with the question, have we been changing the way real Christians should? Uh, this week, I think it would be good to set time aside to check. Is our living wise? Are we making the most of our opportunities? And is our living spirit-filled? Are we displaying these kind of characteristics? Now, we must live distinctive lives. So let's be careful to check that we're doing that and encourage each other in it. Let's pray together.